you were listening to the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. Red Hill Church is a gospel-centered, missional church in the Edwardsville Glen Carbon community of the St. Louis Metro East. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. John the Baptist, others, Elijah. Still others, that one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. But he strictly warned them and instructed them to tell this to no one, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man suffers many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. Then he said to them all, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after this conversation, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were standing with him. As the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. While he was still saying this, a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. They became afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent and at that time told no one what they had seen. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Just then, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son because he's my only child. A spirit seizes him, suddenly he shrieks, and it throws him into convulsions until he foams at the mouth, severely bruising him. It scarcely ever leaves him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. Jesus replied, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. As the boy was still approaching, the demon knocked him down and threw him into severe convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all astonished at the greatness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Brooke. And thanks, Bailey. Like, you kind of got me with that one. I don't know where you went, but you kind of got me there at the end. Um, I've been kind of like wrestling through the passage and the kickoff to our Easter series is when I was like, Imagine the Easter series, like it's just, Easter's about victory, you know what I mean? It's about victory, it's about Jesus winning, and um, 
It's like, I told Bailey, I was like, I want, I want the song, I want them all to be bangers. Like, as like Tom Haverford. Like, I want, I want it to be five-star bangers. Like, everything, I want it to be earworms. Like, the kind of thing that you're humming all week long. You don't even realize you're humming it. Um, and, uh, gosh, just... Uh, Wrestled through, like I, I, I like to tell stories, I like to tell jokes, I like to be funny, um, but I just, also I just, I want to be honest and just say like I'm just, I'm walking up this morning just feeling sad, um, just like where I'm at in my own emotional state. Um, we were expecting Caleb to finish AIT and get to come home, uh, be here for Easter and his birthday and Mother's Day and his brother's graduation and um, just... Had a, he had a series of setbacks and is going to be starting a whole new occupational specialty in the military, which means he's got to change bases. And um, so it's just going to be longer before he comes home. It's really, it's like, it's in the scope of like a lot of other things that are happening, even in our church. It's really not that big of a thing, um, but it's a big thing to us. Um, it's a big thing to me. So we're going to, like, get through this passage just the best that we can. And um, then at the close of our service, I've already told our elders, and just want to let you guys know as well, like, when we have our moment of response, um, we're going to extend that time a little bit longer than normal and just try to do some ministry to each other, to pray for each other, and to encourage each other. Um, and so our, our elders and... Uh, Probably their wives at some, you know, at some point will be available as well. If you lead or host a GC, you want to be available to pray with people. Um, the point is not that we have a whole lot of like designated people prepared to do ministry to other people, but that we're just prepared to minister to each other, uh, to encourage each other, and um, yeah, to help each other just move like one step closer to hope, like what Bailey was talking about. So we're going to work through this. We're going to say we know Jesus has the victory, that he's secured the victory for us. Um, but that uh, our every moment experience in this life is not just um, a series of unmitigated successes without pain. Um, so I, I really, my hope for this Easter series is that we get a real clear picture of who Jesus is and what he was doing when he came to the earth. Um, I think the question that, that Jesus asks is like the question that popular culture has tried to answer. Who, who do people say that I am? I was thinking about this question, like if culture was going to design and craft a savior for itself, what would that look like and what does that look like? And what I wrote was that the, the popular conception of Jesus, the popular savior of the culture, um, is a man who affirms the autonomy of every individual. One who not only accepts us where we are, but also one who leaves us there. The Savior who says, my primary purpose is to remove guilt and the feeling of conviction, to destroy those things, to make you comfortable. The honest answer would be to make you comfortable with all that would steal from you, all that would kill you, and all that would destroy you. One who would perform this service and then leave us alone. So we just didn't feel bad anymore. So we're going to look during this Easter series at who Jesus said he was, what Jesus said he came to do, 
and then what that means for us. In other words, did Jesus know what he was doing? Did he know how to win? Like what was a win for him? And did he win? And then can we win? And if so, how? Most important question in history, I think, is the question that Jesus asks of Peter and that Jesus asks of each of us that all of us must answer. And by the way, that all of us will answer someday truthfully. Philippians 2 makes it clear that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess. Every tongue will agree with God about who Jesus really is, and that's that he's Lord. But we have an opportunity now to answer the question You, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you're God's Messiah. In the other gospels, we see this uh, given a little bit further explanation where Jesus says, this wasn't revealed to you by men. In other words, nobody can teach you that truth. Nobody can say something that causes another person to embrace that as truth. Only God can do that inside of a person. Only God can make that wake up inside of us. Which, by the way, is really good news for those of us who stumble through gospel presentations, who stumble through our own daily lives and our own efforts to try to be a witness, to try to help people see the beauty of Jesus and the power of Jesus, that it's really not dependent upon you and the quality of the presentation that you make. Only God can do that inside of a person. You're God's Messiah, I think Messiah is another one of those like $50 church words that we use and nobody knows what it means. I have this really simple principle for like, can I, do I really know what something is? And the answer for me has always been something like this. If I can't explain it to a seven-year-old, I don't really know what it means. If I can't put it in terms that a child can go, I got my hands around that now then I really don't understand it. And this is something, as I was studying the text, I was like, I don't really understand it. I can give like a vague, generic description. You know, I could probably say something that everybody in here would think was like, it's what I call a delicious word. It's, it's when you say something as a preacher that makes people go, mmm. <laughs> like they just ate something real good, you know, mmm. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's gonna make me think. But, but not really, you know what I mean? Like for the moment, maybe if you write it down, then later you'll look at it again, you'll be like, hmm, still don't know what it means, but I felt like it was something he was proud of, you know, so I wanted to like help him a little bit, like affirm him in, in the preaching just a little bit. So I just, I, I had to look it up, I had to look up what is the Bible, what do Bible dictionaries say about it? What, what are the Hebrew words? What are the Greek words? And, and here's what it means. It means anointed. And it was a reference to three offices, Prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, and kings were anointed. It means they were set apart by God for very specific purposes. Prophets set apart by God to be the official spokesperson for God. Thus saith the Lord, which is why if someone stood up and said, thus saith the Lord, and the Lord had not thus saith, like their prophecy didn't come true, God said you take them and you drag them out and you stone them. It was a serious offense to make a proclamation about who God was and what God said, because for God to speak is for God to act. If God says it, it's an action, stuff happens. So it's prophets who speak on behalf of God, who, who become the very mouth of God for a people. It's priests who are the go-between between sinful people and a holy God. They're anointed for that job. The intercessor or the intermediary between God and men, and it's kings who are designated by God, appointed by God for the purpose of ruling his people. 
It's those who make proclamations for God, those who intercede on behalf of us to God, and those who rule over us with God's endorsement. The Messiah would be the anointed one that God would designate as a spokesperson, as his intermediary, and as his authority. That's what it means to be the Messiah. It means the one that God chose to fulfill all of those roles, the one person. And there were all these prophecies and clues about how to discover who it was going to be. That's what the prophecies are about. They're not just about pointing to Jesus in the womb. They're about saying that this Jesus who was in the womb, this Jesus who lived a sinless life, this Jesus who died an unjust death, and this Jesus who resurrected from that dead state, This Jesus is the one that God designated as this anointed one who would fill all of those roles, who would fulfill all of those offices. That's what it meant when Peter said, you're the Messiah, he was saying, you are quite literally the hope for the history of humanity. The sum total of humanity must pin all of its hopes upon you if they're to be right with God. You're the one that is designated to speak for God. You're the one that is designated by God to be the one who would go back and forth between men and God, and you're the one designated by God to rule over all mankind. That's what it means when Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus, in verse 21, it says, he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one, which is ironic because we're supposed to tell everyone. In some ways, I'm like, would have been a lot easier to be one of the disciples. And then I remember how their stories all ended, and I'm like, okay, you know, so having your son gone for an extra couple of months is really not that bad in the grand perspective of things. But... We live with this thing where we go, we gotta go tell people this truth. But Jesus says, I don't want you to tell anyone this truth, which seems kind of crazy. But then he tells them, he says, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. I was talking with somebody recently about temptation, and I said, you know, temptation is always this one thing. It's always this short circuit of God's plan. So, for instance, God wanted me to have a rich and full and beautiful marriage where I could be fulfilled in every way that a human can be fulfilled in a relationship. The promise of intimate physical love that would be glorifying to God and satisfying to me and my wife. The promise of intimate emotional connection. The promise of purpose that's lived together. And the the temptation that comes is you don't have to wait for all of that. You can short circuit all of that with pornography. You can short circuit all of that with illicit affairs. You can short circuit all of that with uh, wrongful emotional, like unhealthy emotional connections. You can miss the long game. You can short circuit it with this shortcut. And that's how you get to the end goal faster. That was all of the temptations of Jesus. That's the temptation in the Garden of Eden. That's every temptation you have ever faced in your whole life. God says, I have this thing for you. Take my path and you get that thing. Temptation says, you don't have to take that path. All you have to do is just take one step over here. You can immediately have it. But the the problem with it is, is that we take that one step and we get to that place and we find out, oh no, you have to do more of it. You have to increase the input and then you get the satisfaction. And so we keep increasing the input and chasing the high and chasing after the promise that was made to us by God. And it's like when you're trying to go, when you're leaving Memphis and you're trying to go to St. Louis and instead of going north, you go west. You're never gonna get there by going west. 
St. Louis is not the end of that road. You have to turn around and go north. God has said, here's the pathway to purpose, to life, to hope, to meaning, to joy, to peace, to family, to connection. But we have this little whisper that comes along and says, you can have it if you just go on this shortcut. You'll remember in Matthew chapter four when Satan's tempting Jesus. He stands him up before all of the kingdoms of the world and he says, if you'll bow down to me, they'll bow down to you. They're all going to bow. So what's the temptation? The temptation is you don't have to take God's path. You don't have to take God's plan. Instead, just by this one act, you can have it all right now. Jesus says, I don't want you advertising this right now, and here's why. It is necessary. Part of the anointing that he received, part of the office that he had to fulfill, part of the role that he had to play was to suffer many things. To be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. To be killed and to be raised on the third day. In other words, he's saying, I don't want to be known for a a reputation that's based on spectacular powers. I want to be known for a reputation that was obedience, that was built by obedience to what my father commanded of me. We understand this on a practical level, that Jesus could only be the savior of the world. The only way is if he could do what we couldn't do. That's the only way he can save us. And and we get this on a practical level because if you're drowning and someone's going to save you, you, here's what you have to intuitively sort of know. You're gonna need someone who can swim to wherever you are and that is a strong enough swimmer not just to swim there and back, but to swim there and back and carry you. So we need a savior, not just who was pretty good, but who fulfilled all the law's commands, who fulfilled all of the prophecies, who fulfilled all of the expectations. By the way, the savior that popular culture is creating just wants you to be okay with drowning and wants everyone else to say it's okay that that person is drowning. And if you tell them that they're drowning, then you hate them. And you're a terrible, terrible person. We don't get to make up our own draft of what God wants from people. We don't get to make up our own draft of expectations. We don't get to make up our own drafts of goodness or holiness. We're a people who are under authority. We're a people who have to go to God's word to understand what God wants. And by the way, I'm more than happy to be proven wrong about any theological position I hold. But we're going to go to the word together. So I don't want anyone to think, like, my, my full expectation is that Catholics and Baptists and Lutherans and Presbyterians and Episcopalians, that we're going to get to heaven and God's going to go, not even close, <laughs> like, not even close, but I love you and I know you and you can come on in and guess what? Now you're going to know. Come on in and experience it. Verses 23 through 27, Jesus said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life 
because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? In Matthew it says, loses or forfeits his own soul. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory, uh, excuse me, in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Romans 8, 29 says we're being conformed into the image of Jesus. And 1 John 2, 6 says that the one who says he remains in him, who remains in Jesus, should walk just as Jesus did. Jesus says if you want to follow me, you have to do some stuff. We have a high expectation savior. Many of us gave our lives to Jesus under false pretenses. What I mean is you were at a Baptist church or some other church like I was where they were like, you don't have to do anything. It costs you nothing. Salvation's a completely free gift, which it absolutely is, but they don't really sort of elucidate, they don't draw attention to the fact that to become a follower of Jesus means I'm giving my life to him. I belong to him now. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, here's the path. Pick up your cross. I'm not talking about getting a tattoo. I don't care if you have a tattoo of a cross. That's great. Maybe I'll get a tattoo of a cross too someday. I'm not talking about gold jewelry that's a cross. If you have a gold cross on your neck, I, that's fine with me. I don't, it doesn't bother me. I don't care. But that's not what we're talking about. The modern day equivalent would be like we're walking around with a, an electric chair hanging off of our neck or whatever the combination of drugs it is that kills people when they're, when they're put to death by the state. That's what the cross represented. The state putting you to death. Pick up that cross. In other words, stop living for ourselves. Stop following our hearts. Stop seeking after our own desires. Deny yourself. I have high expectations for my family. I have high expectations for my kids. I don't want them to wear it like a burden. Jesus doesn't want me to wear these expectations like a burden. He wants me to have them like a blessing. You know why? Because what Satan wants is to steal everything from me, to kill me, to destroy me, my reputation, my family, and every person and everything that I love. And Jesus says, instead, I want you to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, walk with me every day. Don't try to preserve and protect your own self. Instead, lay it all down. And when you do that, you get it all. You get everything. Jesus has high expectations. I have high expectations. Our church should have high expectations. Ephesians chapter three, verses 16 down through verse 19. Paul says this to the church in Ephesus. He says, I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God doesn't want to shortchange you. He doesn't want to cheat you. He's not trying to keep something from you. He's trying to give you everything that your heart has ever dreamed of having. And Jesus is saying, it's necessary for me to suffer. It's necessary for me to be rejected. It's necessary for me to be killed. And it is necessary for me to rise from death. It's necessary. And why is it necessary? So that you could know the love of God and be filled with all of its fullness. 
You could know that which surpasses knowledge and be filled with all the fullness of God. Verses 28 through 26, we see that some of these guys who didn't taste death yet got to see the kingdom of God, got to truly see it. About eight days after this conversation, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men who were standing with him, as the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. They became afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent and at that time told no one what they had seen. <laughs> Peter's one of my favorite characters in the Bible because he's just saying what everybody else is thinking, you know? And, and I, here's what I love. I, here's what I love about Peter. In this moment, he's like, hey, let's build some tents. I'll build one for Moses. I'll build one for Elijah. I'll build one for you. Don't worry about us. We'll just sleep on the ground. Or we can bunk up with you guys, whatever. You know, big spoon, little spoon. I don't really care. This is amazing. This is incredible. And so let's just stay here forever, which any of us who've been in a wonderful season of life, in a wonderful spiritual moment at youth camp or on a retreat or on a vacation or at a powerful worship gathering, we're like, I don't want to have to go back to my car because when I get to my car, I have to go back to my house. And when I get back to my house, I have to go back to my life. And I just want to stay right here. I want to stay right here. And I think it's great that Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He didn't know what he was saying. He didn't understand the purpose that God had for his life at this moment. He couldn't see what was coming even next. Like even the next day, he didn't know what was gonna happen, much less the next year, much less that someday he'd be crucified upside down, not counting himself worthy to die the same death that Jesus himself died. He had no idea that any of that was coming, not knowing what he was saying. No idea. This, reading this passage, not, you know, this passage is its own sermon Every word of the Bible is probably its own sermon, if we're honest. But I was just struck by this. There's more to Jesus than I could ever fathom. There's more than I have known. He has more beauty, more majesty, more power, and more glory than I can possibly conceive of. These three guys got like this tiny glimpse into his glory, this tiny glimpse into the kingdom. And I was just thinking about my own life, thinking about my own set of circumstances, and thinking about the lives and circumstances of some of the people who are in the room right now. And I was just thinking, like, could we just see a little bit of that? Is there a way for us to catch a glimpse of just a little bit more of who Jesus actually is? Then the next day, it says in verse 37, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. That's always what's happening to Jesus. Just then a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son because he's my only child. 
A spirit seizes him. Suddenly he shrieks and it throws him into convulsions until he foams at the mouth, severely bruising him. It scarcely ever leaves him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. One of my practices when I read the Bible is like I allow myself to be curious about things. So I allow myself to just ask kind of silly questions, you know, like I wonder what it smelled like in that place or I wonder what Jesus was wearing, you know, or I wonder if people were like pressing in on him or giving him personal space. Were the disciples looking at Jesus or looking at the crowd? What did it feel like? Then I try to like put myself in the shoes of some of the people who are there because it's, it's easy to forget that these are real people, that this is a real person. And I just was, I was really moved by the Father. He just says, look at my son. It's like this, like this innocent request, this, this beautiful faith this very simple thing that he wants Jesus to do. He doesn't say, heal my son. He doesn't say, like, do something about it. He just says, would you just look? Just look at him. Because I think if you just look at him, you'd see what I see. You'd know what I'm feeling. And maybe, just maybe, you'd be moved to compassion. Maybe you'd be stirred to do something that nobody else could do. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. And Jesus replied, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. What a, like, just tough response from Jesus. I was like, man, here's the thing. I had to ask myself, is he talking to the father? Is he talking to the crowd? Or is he talking to the disciples? Who's he talking to here? Because this is a hardcore thing if he's talking to the father. You're unbelieving and perverse. Man, I just want you to look at my kid. Like, just, can you just look at my kid? He's my only kid. If he's talking to the crowd, the crowd's probably like you when your class got in trouble as a kid and all you'd been doing was your homework. You're like, come on, man. I just show, like, I just got here. I didn't even know this guy. What do you want me to do about this? Like, but it, if we keep it in context, like, context is super important. I saw this meme. It was like a picture of Julius Caesar, and it said, um, Julius Caesar died today um, surrounded by 55 of his closest friends. He was a famous politician and a known advocate for blah, 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 blah. And in the bottom it said, context really matters. <laughs> Luke chapter nine and verse one says this, summoning the 12, Jesus gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. The promise of spiritual power and the promise of spiritual authority doesn't always produce the presence of spiritual power or the presence of spiritual authority. You and I have been made daughters and sons of the most high God, brought into his family, 
filled with his spirit, sent out every day to live as salt and light. Paul says, it's as if God's making his very appeal through you. And yet, oftentimes, like the disciples, our faith is anemic at best, absent at worst, with a world that's just desperate for someone to just look, just look at what's going on. Can you just look at what's going on? So it made me ask the question, Peter and John and James, they're up on the mountain, they fell asleep, like the disciples are always doing, like, all, like Jesus takes them to this incredible moment, and they're like, we're just gonna catch a few winks while you transfigure into this glowing, sort of amazing thing. And then when we wake up, we're gonna be like, hey, how about if we just stay here forever and forget all the people that need to like, know about this kind of a thing? Let's just hang out here, because Moses and Elijah seem like my kind of guys. We'll build them a little shelter, be great. Turn some rocks into bread for us or something. I don't know. But there were nine other disciples who had also been given authority. Jesus gave them authority over all demons. This wasn't Satan himself possessing the child. This is just a demon. I mean, I say just as a demon as if I've encountered lots of demons and handled them, you know, with great skill and proficiency. But Jesus gave them authority. Jesus had authority. He gave them authority. Unbelieving and perverse. Jesus said, you are this. I'm giving you this. And the disciples probably were like me, and they were like, but am I really that? And did he really give me that? Jesus said, go do this. And the disciples were probably like me and said, maybe I'll just do something different. As the boy was still approaching, text says the demon knocked him down and threw him into severe convulsions. Hi, Phoebe. I looked this up, and this is a wrestling term, yet another instance where wrestling is obviously a sport of the Bible. So those of you who don't appreciate it can't really appreciate the Bible. That's what that means. <laughs> It's just a little bit of a joke. Yeah, this, uh, this demon basically lat drops him, you know? It's like a hip toss. It's a headlock and throws him down, throws him into severe convulsions. And what does Jesus do? It says, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. Jesus is just like basically like checking out at the grocery store. I have authority over a can of green beans. Boop. I throw it in my bag. It takes no special effort because I have control of my own body presently. I know how to use my brain to grab something, slide it across a scanner, throw it in the bag. It seems to me that this is all the effort that Jesus expends in dispatching this demon. He's like, get out. There's no great cosmic struggle is what I'm saying. Heaven and hell are not engaged in this cosmic battle where lots of angels are dying and lots of demons are dying and it's like, we're not sure who's going to win in the end. No, what it is, is it's more like God has the devil in a submission hold. And the only reason that he's not obliterating him completely is because some of y'all still need to give your lives to him so you don't spend eternity in hell. He's slow in keeping his promises 
so that all might come to repentance. That's what Peter said. Jesus had authority. He rebukes the demon. He heals the boy. He gives him back to his dad. He didn't leave the child in that state. He didn't try to negotiate with the demon as if a bargain had to be struck. It wasn't difficult. It wasn't complex. He has authority. Jesus has authority over my life. Jesus has authority over your life. Jesus has authority over every spiritual thing that exists. Jesus has authority over the course of history. Jesus has all authority. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And now I'm sending you. The good news about all that authority is he intends to show you kindness. He came to seek, he came to save, and he came to bring glory to God. And what's the result? It says, and they were all astonished at the greatness of God. Awe. This strange mix of reverence and wonder. Have you ever felt it? I felt it a few times in my life. Like when my kids were born, we're just like, oh my God, like I can't believe that this is real. So, so much so that when we're leaving the hospital, they got Sarah in the wheelchair and I'm going to get the car. And, uh, and I was like, I mean, like, you just let me take this kid? Like, I was like, I mean, I'm asking the nurse. I was like, like, I just, like, I think if you knew me, you'd be like, I mean, as long as she's around, it's, it's okay. It's like, you're just letting me take this kid? Like, I don't need to sign stuff or make some kind of promises or something. I mean, I don't have to pose for a picture or something, you know, like, and the nurse is like, sir, this is your baby. Nobody can take this baby from you. This is your baby. These are your babies. Like this, this awe, this strange mix of reverence and wonder that's so lacking in our everyday lives. Our everyday lives are so monotonous and boring. They're so routine. You get up and you just do the same stuff day in and day out. And you fill up every waking moment with noise. Every waking moment. I was reading this story about Netflix and, and how it like took over the market of streaming uh, video and how Netflix was talking about that the, the next level of success they were trying to achieve was to take over the market of sleep. So that, so that people would constantly and endlessly be streaming every waking moment of our lives filled with noise, filled with diversion, filled with distraction. There's just no room for awe anymore. There's no room for reverential wonder, like what's going to happen. This is probably going to sound dumb because it probably is dumb, but one time I experienced it in just like, what we might call normal life, and a huge number of people experienced it. And it was back when the Marvel movies were in their first iteration of things, and, and they had the two-part finale. And if you haven't seen it, this is a spoiler alert, but it came out like a bunch of years ago, and during COVID, you could have watched all these like 50 times. I mean, hypothetically, I don't know that personally or anything. But in the movie where the end of it Thanos snaps his finger, they don't, they don't stop him, and this massive amount of the world dies, and all these heroes die, and they're vaporized, and the movie ends. It's like the only time that I've ever been in a place, 
like that, like a movie, a situation like that, where everybody in the room is dead silent. Everyone's sitting there, and we're all waiting, like something has to happen now. What's gonna, like, how are they gonna fix this? What's gonna happen? This space for fear and reverence and wonder to move in. They're all astonished. They're living in awe. That stunned feeling that leaves you speechless, that makes you ask questions, that makes you feel this weird mix of fear and hope, makes you acknowledge that you're in some kind of a special moment. Like there's a thing that's happening here. That you're in the presence of something or someone that is significantly greater than you expected them to be, significantly greater than you feel you are yourself. And our soul is craving that. It's craving the opportunity to experience awe and to experience wonder. I I want it in my life. I want it for our church. That we're a place of fear and awe and wonder. I don't mean an unhealthy fear. But I mean an understanding that when God shows up, we are exposed. That it's the best thing that can happen to us but it's a scary thing. That feeling of reverence, that, you know, we have a very casual atmosphere, but not a casual relationship with God. That feeling of wonder that says, I don't know what's gonna happen, but it feels like something good just has to. It just has to. We're gonna move towards our response moment and um, I want to give like a few instructions. I've, I've asked our elders and, uh, to, to be available for, for prayer and for ministry but I also want to say you might maybe you're a GC host or a GC leader and you also want to make yourself available to pray with people uh, to minister to them and by minister to them here's what I mean. Someone says this is happening in my life and you say I'm so sorry that that's happening to you. I'm sorry that you're going through that. Maybe you give them a hug. Maybe you pray for them. Maybe you just sit down by them and say, I'm just going to sit with you so you don't have to be alone while you're feeling this. I'm not talking about doing an act of like miraculous healing or somehow magically changing the situation they find themselves in. But it's easy for us to program our worship services so tightly that there's no space for the Spirit of God to move and there's no room for us to understand that the ministry of the Word is a lot more than a 35-minute sermon that's delivered by one person. That the place where ministry seeps in, where awe and wonder seeps in, is when we can say to each other, I'm going through something, and we can say, well, you don't have to go through it alone. I was reading this really stupid thing on Facebook this morning from a friend of mine who recently got divorced, and she said, uh, she posted this story, it's so dumb, but it it got me, so maybe it's not, you know? But it was a Winnie the Pooh story, and it was Winnie the Pooh and Piglet. And said Winnie the Pooh and Piglet, had decided that they were going to walk to Eeyore's house because they hadn't seen Eeyore in a few days. And when they got to Eeyore's house, 
They said, Eeyore, we haven't seen you in a few days. Where have you been? Is everything okay? And Eeyore said, no, everything's not okay. I'm just feeling especially sad today. And I didn't want to come around because I figured you probably wouldn't want to be around someone who is feeling especially sad. And Pooh and Piglet looked at each other. And they sat down. And Eeyore sat down and he said, what are you doing? And Pooh and Piglet said, we just wanted to sit with you. So you know it's okay to feel a little bit sad. That's just the story. That's the end of it. I was like, why am I crying about that? I feel so dumb, but every time I've ever been sad, I felt like I had to apologize. Every time... Every time anybody I know is like, I'm just not okay and I'm sorry and I don't want to be a burden. We all say the exact same thing. So we're going to make some space in this response time. Our elders are going to be available and others will be available. If you want to make yourself available, I'm going to ask you now to just go ahead and like stand up somewhere. I used to follow this guy. He was a pastor. His name was Pete. Um, and uh, he pastored a church. When he resigned from his church, he said, I'm not resigning because of a moral failure or anything like that. Um, he said, you know, we, we planted this church. And when we planted it, we said, um, it's, a, it's a place where it's okay to not be okay. He said, that's been true for everyone except for me. And he said, I'm, I'm just not okay anymore. And, and that was it for him. It was really formative for me. And uh, I'm not interested in pursuing uniqueness as a church for the sake of being unique. So please don't misunderstand my intent. Um, but I am interested in pursuing a place where I just get to be a member who serves as a pastor and where it's okay for me to stand up on a Sunday morning and say, I just... I don't feel real funny today, you know. I don't feel like telling a lot of jokes or a lot of stories. And to get up and just lay what's, you know, as far as performatively goes, just lay kind of an egg during like the biggest season of the year where you want to do nothing but, you know, hit bombs. Uh, instead of bomb, you know, you want to you hit dingers and just uh, bangers and everything's great. Um, I guess I just want to say, you don't need to apologize if you're not doing okay today. But you do our church a disservice if you do that by yourself. You do yourself a disservice and you do our church a disservice. And by suffering alone, I think you, you prevent us from having some margin, some space to say, let's let God invade a moment and just sit with us, you know? So I'm going to be, uh, be available as well.
to just sit with some of you. You may want to get up and go just sit by somebody. If you don't have the strength to get up and move somewhere, but you want someone to just come sit by you, not to you know, give you the third degree or to ask you 500 questions, but to just say, I'll just sit with you. You can just raise up your hand. Somebody will see it and somebody will come sit with you. We've got like a lot of people available to pray and you may come over and have someone like maybe you think you're going to go over and get prayed for and maybe you, know, you probably will but you may end up also needing to do a little ministry yourself. This is the, this is the beauty of it. We all get to be wounded healers. We take the Lord's Supper to remind ourselves of all that Jesus has done for us, who he really is. I invite you to do that. The elements are available on the table. We don't have any agenda here. And we don't have any time frame here. And if we end up needing this space longer than we can have it, then we'll just go outside. It'll be fine. I'm going to pray. And when I say amen... I'm going to leave it to you and to the Lord. There are a lot of people available to pray with you, and there are even more available to sit with you. You respond as the Lord leads you. Jesus, I want to thank you For the moment when that father said, Would you look at my son? Because you looked. I'm just asking you to give our church the humility to lean on each other. the courage to shut up and just sit with somebody. <laughs> you just have your way. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions about this message, our church, or the gospel, or if you'd like to get in touch with one of our elders, you can visit our website at www.redhill.church. Navigate to the I'm New tab and click the option for Connection Card. Filling out this online card will allow you to get in touch with us and one of our elders will follow up as soon as possible. Thanks for listening and be sure to check back next week as we continue to study and apply God's Word together.